fundamentals. Fundamentals are essential to success. Whether it be on a basketball court or whether it be building a house or um, you know, coaching some other team or flying a plane, you better know and apply the fundamentals, right? I heard an ER doctor once say this. He explained the situation. He said, that's especially true in medicine. In the trauma center where life hangs in the balance and the pressure is on, there is a formula to remind us of top priorities. He calls it the ABCs of trauma. A meaning airway, breathe for breathing, and C for circulation. And I listened as he talked about a situation. He described it like this. Patient was rushed into an ER after a terrible accident. Her leg was fractured, uh, actually jutting out at a 90 degree angle below the knee. And everyone in the ER was naturally paying close attention to the fracture, which was of course a serious issue. But they had forgotten the ABCs, including A for airway, which was blocked. He said the lack of oxygen in that situation was clearly what was about to kill her. And it was my job, he said, in such a situation to not let the team get carried away with what looks terrible but is not the imminent threat. The patient couldn't breathe, so I made sure we focused on the ABCs first. We cleared the airway, A, we assisted her breathing, B, and we then put in IVs to support her circulation, ABC. Then we eventually got to the fractured leg. He added, you know, even the most experienced veteran doctors have to go back and review the basics regularly. I think in a similar situation today, friends, that the church in America desperately also needs to return to basics in many respects. We are entering a period of moral emergency in our country in many ways, and if we are going to survive, or better yet, thrive, as God wants us to do, not just survive, but thrive, then we need to do what God has called us to do, and that is to make sure we stand on basics, have a grasp of the Bible basics. 1 John chapter 2, verse 24 says, As for you, see that what you have heard from the beginning remains in you. And if it does, you will remain in the Son and in the Father. Lasting faith has to be built on Bible basics. There is no shortcut. Bible 101. Romans chapter 10, verse 17 says, So faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. Now, we know from Hebrews, the Bible tells us that without faith, it is impossible to please God. Faith is essential. And how does the Bible tell us we get there? So faith comes what? By hearing what? Hearing our heart, hearing our gut, as is often told of us, or, or we are encouraged to do. Listen to your heart, listen to your gut. No. It's by hearing the word of Christ, the Bible. That's where we need to make sure we return. So while I share opinions and thoughts and sometimes, you know, maybe a modern illustration or whatever, my goal as your pastor is to work hard to make sure that my sermons begin and end with or founded on God's Word. My part, my, my added elements here and there are to supplement, but the key is God's Holy Word. We need to build a foundation on His Word because it is the final authority on all subjects. Good time for an amen. Come on, help me out. There we go. Thank you. You know, as I shared two weeks ago, spending time reading God's Word is a get-to thing. It's not a have-to thing. There is so much uh, to be said about that, that perspective, that, that uh, attitude. So I talked two weeks ago, if you were here after returning from sabbatical, 
about how God had worked in my life and helped me come to the understanding again of the importance of prioritizing above all other things my quiet time, my personal time, devotional time with the Lord. And I contended and tried to share with you that I think for every person who calls himself a Christian, meaning a Christ follower, for every one of us who want to wear that title, we need to make sure that we are committed to spending time alone with the Lord, that it has to be a priority for us. So we talked, again, two weeks ago about the necessity of returning to our first love, as Jesus talked about in Revelation 2 when he talked to the church in Ephesus. In Revelation, the last book of the Bible, keeping first things first and heeding the first fruits principle, giving God our best as opposed to just our leftovers, as we often do. And today, I want to look, rather than at the last book of the Bible, I want to look at the very first book of the Bible, and look at three foundational principles that I hope, I hope and pray will help you stand firm in a world that leads us down other paths in many respects. The Bible is the most important book, again, that has ever been written. Amen? Amen. The most important book ever. We believe it to be the inspired Word of God, able to make us wise unto salvation through faith in Jesus, because it says so and because that is proven to be true. That passage coming from 2 Timothy 3, goes on to say, All Scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness, so that the man of God or the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. It is the most important book ever written, because it was written by Almighty God. More than anything else, again, this is perspective and attitude, more than anything else, it was written as a love letter. We've got to look at it that way, not a rule book to beat us over the head with, but a love letter. It is a privilege that we get to have the Bible with us. So if you have one, I'd encourage you to take it out. Sometimes I ask you to turn to a passage, and you're like, oh, darn, I don't know where that's at. Well, how about this one? It's really easy. The very first line in the whole book, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. I think you can all find that. The very beginning, and the Bible begins like this. It says, in the beginning, God created. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So the first of the three Bible basics that I want to talk to you today that all just flow out of the beginning of the book, the whole book, 66 books come in, coming together to make one book, is simply this. We are created by God and ultimately accountable to God. If you're filling in the blanks, there you go. Created by God and ultimately accountable to God. Now that is not popular today. That is not what you typically hear, at least not in most secular schools, whether it be elementary schools all the way up through colleges. That is not generally what we are told. We are generally told you are here, you are here because you uh, are the result of countless years of random evolution. You're told that billions of years ago there was some cataclysmic event, it's usually called the Big Bang, and that uh, that eventually resulted in the complex universe that we enjoy today. And that in some freak accident, a lightning bolt struck a glob of goo and out came this one-celled amoeba and that became the source of all life and things have just gotten better and better ever since then. Now evolutionists cannot explain how nothing became something or how simple matter became complex life. They just add billions of years to the equation and tell us to trust them and their theories. But that's why Christian apologist Norm Geisler, I don't know if you've read this book, but it is a fantastic book. He wrote a book called, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. And his point, his point was that it takes more faith to believe in the evolutionary theory, it's not fact, it is a theory, 
But it takes way more faith to believe in that than it does to believe in this very first verse of the Bible, which again says, in the beginning, God created. Now, it is not my intent to debate the complexities of evolution. I'll just admit I am ill-equipped to do that. I'm not smart enough. Plus, I have not studied that enough. I don't feel drawn by the Lord to spend the amount of time necessary to really debate with people who have studied the other side of things. But it is my intent to urge you to listen to the Bible and to use what I would call your God-given common sense to come to the conclusion about your origin. God's Word says it, and I think common sense confirms it. You instinctively know the difference between deliberate design and random results. Show you this. Years ago, Kim and I took the boys to South Dakota and with some good friends to visit Mount Rushmore. I have a couple of other better pictures of the mountain, but I wanted to show you these because I just love to look at how cool and cute my boys were back then. And it just reminds me, I look at that and I go, man, that wasn't that long ago, but look at how drastically time flies quickly and how they change. Parents, mom and dad, remember that. It, it goes by really quickly. We're just a couple of weeks away from taking Ethan back to college again. And I'll probably cry again like I did last year. But anyway, <laughs> um, if you've ever been to Mount Rushmore, you know that it's very impressive. It's an amazing sight to look up there and see the faces of George Washington and Thomas Jefferson and Teddy Roosevelt and Abraham Lincoln. I mean, it's, it's an amazing feat or sight. We were all very impressed that day. I remember it well as we stood and looked and wiped the sweat on all that. But we enjoyed gazing up there and talking about all of that and what was on those rocks and, and who each man was and how incredible this mountain is. And the boys had all kinds of questions. But let me tell you one thing they never asked. One question that never seemed to enter their mind, let alone come out of their mouth. They never once turned and said, hey, Dad, do you think... Do you think those faces up there were carved into the mountain by people? Or is it possible maybe millions of years of weathering just naturally caused that to happen? Never did they even ponder that. Ethan and Garrett were only five and eight years old respectively, and yet they instinctively knew that those mountains were clearly uh, man-made, that they were, they were made with intelligent design. They were not just some freak accident. Clear as day. They had lots of questions about who did it and how they did it and why they did it and how long it took and all those kind of things, but never did they wonder if it was a freak accident of nature. From a very early age, I would contend that we all know the difference between deliberate design and random results. Common sense tells even a five-year-old or an eight-year-old that those mountains, that mountain is way too complex to just be an accident. And yet, let me ask you, what is more complex? That mountain with four faces of four men, four presidents from our country's history carved into it. What's more complex, that or the face of a newborn, precious human baby with, with, a, with eyes that, that blink and ears that listen and a nose that can smell and all of that? And yet, some would tell you to look at that little baby and hold it in your arms and go, wow, isn't that amazing? How, how incredible, just random chances developed into something so beautiful and so incredible. You know, how can anyone look at a newborn baby and say anything like that? Psalm chapter 14, verse 1 says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Romans chapter 1 in a somewhat similar way, says, since 
what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. God has given us ample evidence in the deliberate, complex design of His creation for us to know that there is a Creator and that we are subject to Him, even if we don't know or have access to a Bible. All right, well, back to Genesis, where we're looking at these three key Bible basics. Chapter 2 tells us, Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Friends, God's Word says it as well. You are not an accident. You are not here by accident. You are formed by a God who knows you and yet still loves you. Isn't that incredible? Scripture tells us he knit you together in your mother's womb and even knows the number of hairs on your head, which, yes, is more impressive for some of you than others, but still. <laughs> the, he, it also tells us he knows our innermost thoughts. I mean, those things that we don't want anybody to know. He knows that, and yet again, he still loves us. Wow. But here's the difficult part of this first principle, and that is that you are not only created by Almighty God, you are also accountable to Almighty God. God gets to set the guidelines by which we live. Look again at Genesis chapter 2. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Now notice from the beginning, God set some parameters around man's freedom but that he did so for the sake of our good, for, for Adam's good in that case, Adam and Eve's good. It was not to confine or hold out on or, 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 any, or dangle in front of and tantalize and, you know, or none of that. It was, it was for our good, for his good, and therefore our good. And in this whole process, he created what is called free will. God told us from the beginning that if we use our free will to obey him, we will be blessed. But if we disobey and use our free will to go our own way, do our own thing, and thanks but no thanks God, if we go down that road, there are consequences that have to be paid. You see, no matter how much authority you have on this earth, or think you have on this earth, you are still accountable. You might, it's possible you might get to a place where you're not accountable to any other human, not likely, but it's possible. But even then, you are under the authority of your almighty God, creator. And the Bible makes it clear that one day every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Christ, no matter how smart or wealthy or successful or, or whether you believe or don't believe, none of that will matter. And then it tells us that we're all going to stand again before the judgment seat of Christ and we're going to have to give an account of the deeds that we have done in this life, all of them, good or bad. We're going to have to answer someday to God, to God, not the political correctness, not to majority rule, not, not to popular opinion or any of that, but to Almighty God. I have here what is called the New England Primer. Anybody ever seen one of these? Maybe you know what it is. Um, this was the primary textbook for American school children for almost 200 years, a vast majority of our country's history. 
It was first published in the 1700s. It sold over 2 million copies. And there's a section here in the middle that says it's called the, the Shorter Catechism. And this is, again, just a school textbook for children that was used for almost a couple hundred years. And the first question in this, cate- or in this section is, what is the chief end of man? Boy, I need glasses to read this, but anyway. What is the chief end of man? And there's an answer given, and children were to recite, to memorize this, and then be able to recite it back, just where tests were generated and all that. What is the chief end of man? And the answer is, if I can find it, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. School textbook. For over, or almost for 200 years, American school children got this and other concepts that, that flow downstream from God's Word right in their public school setting. The Lord's Prayer is in here. There are many other things like this that are in here. And because we, and therefore the children, got Bible basics poured into them, I think that's much of why God has so richly blessed our country for so long. But now, today... It's a slippery slope. Today, we have removed God from the schools. And kids are told that they are just the result of random acts and that they are the highest form of animals and that their primary purpose is no longer to glorify God. It is all about self-gratification. Just do what feels right. Trust your heart. You know, do whatever comes natural to you. Be true to yourself. All these kinds of things. But this all leads, in so many cases, to confusion and and frustration, and insecurity, and a lack of purpose, and lack of hope. So, whether you are a parent trying to help your children, or whether you be an adult who is trying to rethink what you have been taught, can I encourage you to remember and to teach to others, you, we are not the center of the universe. Almighty God is. So important. Parents, parents, please teach your children this. Help Help avoid allowing, don't spoil them. Allow them to understand truth that they are not the center of the universe, that God Almighty is, so that they can avoid walking down this, this greased path that is leading to nowhere good, that our country is, is proliferating so rapidly. And then remember and teach them that Almighty God merits our respect. And more than that, He merits our devotion and our love. Again, Being in relationship with Him is a get-to thing. It's not a have-to thing. Oh, our attitude, our perspective on that is so powerful. He first loved us, that's why we love Him. He first loved us by creating us and then sending His one and only Son to pay for our sins by dying on a cross so that we could be forgiven of those sins and given an opportunity to spend all eternity with Him in heaven. That is Bible basic number one found in Genesis, primarily the very first verse. Secondly, I think what we see here in the very beginning of God's book, God's Bible, is this, that we are contaminated by Adam's fall and we naturally gravitate towards sin, which leads to death. Let me explain why that's significant. First of all, the end of Genesis chapter 2 tells us about God creating woman, bringing her and Adam together. Um, He performs... Uh, the very first marriage ceremony, giving us the formula from day one how marriage is to be defined, and that is one man plus one woman for life. That is his definition. 
And we would be wise to recognize that we are never to disregard or try to redefine that, which, of course, happens a lot. But then Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, goes like this. Now, the serpent was more crafty, circle or think, at least in your mind, circle that word, was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Now, many people think that they've evolved so much that they no longer need to believe in the devil. I mean, come on, a talking snake or, you know, some person in a red, you know, outfit or whatever, wearing, carrying a pitchfork, that kind of, it just sounds so ludicrous. You know, I don't need to believe in that anymore, so many people would say. But Jesus believed in the devil. Jesus believed in the devil, and so should we. Jesus said that he is the father of all lies and has been a murderer from the beginning. We need to believe in him as well. Interestingly, the same people who are rejecting the idea of Satan today are often the same people who are scratching their heads and going, Man, why is there so much evil and ugly stuff in the world. What would possess somebody to take a gun or a bunch of guns and walk into a school or shopping area or business or concert or whatever and just start mowing down strangers, even children? Why does so much ugly stuff like that happen in our world? It's because the one that they have denied existence or tried to deny exists is very real like a roaring lion, looking for whom he can devour, coming to steal, kill, and destroy. The first verse of chapter 3 tells us that Satan was crafty. There's that word again, crafty, meaning very intelligent. Don't ever underestimate incredible intelligence in Satan. He asked Eve, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? That's the way he usually begins. He questions God's word, undermining it. Today it might sound like, do you really think the Bible is true? I've heard there are all kinds of contradictions. Don't, I mean, do you really think it can be trusted? Or do you think God really cares about you and all your little piddly problems? I mean, think how many billions of people are on this planet. Do you think he really has time for you? Or do you really think he's going to forgive you again? I mean, how many times? Would you forgive you? How, how many times do you expect him to forgive? Verse 2 of chapter 3. The woman said to the servant, We may eat fruit from the trees of the garden, but God did say you must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. Notice that Satan has successfully tempted Eve to focus on the one thing she is to avoid. There are scores and scores of wonderful fantastic, yummy trees to eat fruit from, but she's fixated on, fascinated with the one tree that she was told to stay away from. And then Satan says, you will certainly not die. You will not. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now notice Satan's tactics. He uses the same formula today. I mean, if it worked then and continues to work, why change it? So he continues with this same basic approach, what he has done for centuries, and that is he questions God's word, he denies God's word, and then he reverses God's word over and over. You won't die, Eve. God's lying to you. The truth is, you'll just be like him, and then you'll be able to be your own boss, and nobody will be able to tell you what to do. Doesn't that sound great? Don't you deserve that? 
Today it might sound like this. Has God really told you that sex is only for marriage? Come on. Who really believes that? Sex, sex is designed to be so much more. Sex within marriage is boring. An affair is a lot more exciting. Or even if you do want to be faithful, monogamous, and all that, even then you at least need to know if you're sexually compatible before you get married. Or you might say, has God told you that you need to forgive that person who hurt you? Think about how deeply that hurt has gone. Do you really think you need to forgive them? Come on. Don't they deserve punishment in some way? No, here's what you need to do. You need to get even with them, and then you'll feel a lot better. Verse 6 of chapter 3. When the woman saw the fruit of the tree saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her poor, unsuspecting, innocent husband. Okay, that wasn't in there, but maybe it should be. I don't know, maybe not. But Gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Satan, as he cleverly does, often cleverly does, tells them a partial truth. You eat of this fruit and you'll know the difference between good and evil. That was true. This was the beginning of sin, the very first sin in the history of the world. And just as Adam and Eve gave in and committed that sin and felt guilty and uncomfortable and dirty and all of that, we are walking down the same path. And have been for centuries since then, dealing with the same consequences. Rolf, Ralph Waldo Emerson once said, and I love this quote. He once said, there are many things of which a wise man might wish to be ignorant. I think that's really powerful. Adam and Eve probably wished that they were ignorant of what they had learned after committing that first inaugural sin. But they could not go backwards. Neither can we. Verse 8 continues, Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He, Adam, answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he, or God, said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman, the woman that you put here with me. She gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Adam invented and then continued and in a way perfected the blame game from day one, didn't he? And we've all been playing it ever since. It's not my fault, God. She, she, and you know what? Actually, God, if you look at the verse there, she created by you, she did it, but kind of you created her. So it's kind of your fault as well, you know. Anybody's fault but mine. I, I'm guiltless here. I, I'm such a victim, you know. Genesis 3, verse 13. Then the Lord said, Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said so similarly, again, failing to want to take any ownership or responsibility, wanting to pass the blame, if at all possible. She said, the serpent deceived me and I ate it. The devil made me do it, in other words. What might that sound like today? Well, maybe 
Hey, if you had to live with my wife, you'd have a drinking problem too. <laughs> Not me, but some people might say that. These government regulations are so ridiculous, they practically force you to cheat. Or if, if you want to get anywhere in this world today, you have to be willing to lie sometimes. You have no shot if you don't. But again, the second Bible basic or principle that we need to remember is that we are contaminated, all of us contaminated by Adam's fall, and naturally therefore gravitate towards sin, which leads to death. The sin nature of man is very real and very present in all of us, and one of the key Bible basics is to understand this and to accept it and to take some ownership of our mistakes and not play the blame game but to admit who we are, which is sinful people in need of a Savior. To acknowledge that. But where we most need to see it not, is not so much just in other people. We need to see that across the board. Yes, it's a human worldwide thing, but it needs to be seen in the mirror as much as anything else. We need to own who we are. The Apostle Paul talked about this in Romans chapter 7. He said, for I know that good itself does not dwell in me. That is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I want, or do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Wow. Can I ever relate to that? Anybody else? Maybe? Yeah. Yeah. It is called a sinful nature. We need to acknowledge that. Every day, Satan whispers these seductive lies into our ears, trying to convince us that good is evil, that evil is good, that what God calls beautiful is ugly, and vice versa. Even though he said to us in Isaiah chapter 5, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness. Woe to them. But rather than, again, just seeing this in other people, we need to see it in ourselves. We need to start there. Look in the mirror and then repent, which again means to turn. Not just say I'm sorry and continue down the path, but to return to our first love as we talked about two weeks ago. Because, as God's word tells us in Romans 6.23, because the wages of sin is death. It is death. Genesis 3 shows us that through the story of Adam and Eve. If we were to continue reading, we'd see that. Their story has therefore become our story ever since. But we're not just talking about physical death. We're talking about spiritual death, separated from God and anything that is good for all eternity. The wages of sin is death, but, the verse continues, and anytime you see a but, uh, Mac Owen has said this many times and I love it, it's so true. Generally, the best part of the sentence is then what follows the but. So whenever you see a but, look for something really good, okay, in a written sense, all right? The wages of sin is death, but the, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that brings us to the third and most important final Bible basic that we see here in the beginning of the whole book, Genesis, the first few chapters, and that is there is hope through the shed blood of Jesus. There is hope. There's a cool verse that can easily be missed in this Genesis story that hints of a coming Savior. Look at it with me. It's verse 21 of chapter 3. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And you go, wait a minute, how's that a reference to Jesus? 
Well, they had already tried to make clothes for themselves out of fig leaves, right? We just saw that uh, after their shame had come and all of that. But that didn't work. So God clearly here kills an animal and covers them, Adam and Eve, covers them with skin, it says. This is the first time we see death in the Bible. First time it happens. God shed blood to cover the sin or the guilt of Adam and Eve. And that was a symbol to illustrate that the only way that sin can be forgiven is through the shedding of blood. Hebrews tells us that again in chapter 9. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Now, if you read through the rest of the Old Testament, you will see again and again how God, from this point forward, led his people to shed blood of an innocent animal and to sometimes wipe it above the doorpost like at Passover or to sprinkle it on an altar as a sin offering. But the Bible also says that the blood of bulls and goats was not enough. So eventually, in his perfect time, he sent the perfect sacrifice, the perfect Lamb of God, and that was his one and only son, Jesus. His one and only begotten son. And there is hope, but it is through the blood, the shed blood of Jesus. There is forgiveness. There is eternal life. There is life in us in a holistic sense through the blood of Jesus. The whole story, this whole book, the whole thing about, about life is all about Jesus. It begins and ends with Jesus. Jesus is at the center of all that matters. He is the most important Bible basic we can ever stand on. Only Jesus claimed to be God and then proved it by conquering death and rising from the grave. Only Jesus lived a perfect life so, so as to become the perfect Lamb of God and take away the sins of the world. Only Jesus could be an expression of God's love for us and yet also an expression of God's justice and punishment for sin. Only Jesus promised he could, he could die and then raise, be raised from, from the dead and actually pull it off. Only Jesus. Only Jesus can say to you, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, will, though, he, though he die, will not die. And, will, and, and believing in me, you will never die. John 11. Only Jesus can say to you, don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God, trust also in me. My Father's house are many rooms. If we're not so, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, you can trust I will come back and take you that you might be with me. Only Jesus can empower you with the a Holy Spirit, so that you can overcome the temptations of this world and get to a place where you someday say, with Paul, I truly can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can be a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. Only Jesus died an atoning death on the cross. You know, when Jesus died on the cross, it was not a martyr's death. It was not. It was an atoning death death. He said, nobody takes my life from me. I give it up freely. It's an atoning death. I believe that when Jesus died over 2,000 years ago, he was able to, in that moment, look to the future in 2018 and see each one of you and me. See all the good, the bad, the ugly, everything about us. I believe he looked at me and he said, Scott Park, I see you. I see you. I see all the good and the bad. I see every sin, every mistake. The ones that you've committed over and over, I see all of that, and I love you. I see the day you die. I see it all. I know how it's all going to play out. And so therefore, I believe Jesus went to that cross, or as he was going to that cross, he gathered up all of that, all those mistakes and sins and things that the devil wants me to just 
wallow in mud feeling guilty about. And Jesus said, I'm taking all that with me to the cross and I'm nailing it to the cross and removing it as far as the east is from the west so that you can be forgiven and be seen as white as snow by your heavenly Father and spend eternity with us. I want to ask if you will, will you stand with us? We're going to close by singing a wonderful song called, where it's all about being real from the inside out. From the inside out. One of the key Bible basics is to just be real with God. He wants relationship. He doesn't want more religion. He wants relationship. And that comes only by being honest and real with Him. And saying, dear God, I am all yours. I'm not holding back anything. From the inside out, not just what is seen on the outside by others who look at me, but from the inside out, Lord, I want to love you with all I've got. Maybe you need to come today and repent and confess. Maybe you need to make Jesus your Lord and Savior for the very first time and step down, walk down here and say, I need to talk with and pray with somebody. Whatever it is, I just want to encourage you as we close to picture, to understand how much Jesus loves you by picturing Jesus standing up here, not me, Jesus standing up here with nail scars in his hands and tears in his eyes saying, I love you.